0: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 2009, Zimbabwe issued a $100 trillion note. It barely paid for loaf of bread. Its inflation rate then was probably upwards of 200 million percent. Today, the rate is 152 percent and rising, leading many to fear that hyperinflation is coming back. America's bombing of Tokyo in March of 1945 killed 100,000 people in a single night, almost as many as in the much more famous nuclear attack on Hiroshima. Our obituaries editor remembers a man who insisted that Japan not forget its past. First up though, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky gave his latest video address yesterday. He thanked the United States for approving a $40 billion aid package, but he also gave a chilling assessment of the situation in eastern Ukraine. He said it was no exaggeration to describe what's happening there as a hell.
2: все Donbass
0: is completely destroyed, he said. This is a deliberate and criminal attempt to kill as many Ukrainians as possible. This is what will be qualified as the genocide of the Ukrainian people. Much of the world has thrilled to President Zelensky's brave clarity. But the Kremlin's propaganda machine ensures that few Russians will ever see or hear him.
1: Since Vladimir Putin announced the start of the so-called special military operation in Ukraine on February 24th, control over information in Russia has become a lot tighter.
0: Noah Snyder is the economist Tokyo bureau chief, but before that, he covered Russia for years. There have been new censorship laws, essentially, that ban reporting, citing
1: unofficial sources, even calling the war a war is now effectively a crime.
0: And how have these laws affected media outlets in Russia? So these laws have had a
1: huge impact on the media landscape inside Russia, which was already, of course, quite controlled and somewhat closed before the invasion, but has become a lot more so since. We've seen, for example, the banning or blocking of a bunch of Western social networks, including Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We've seen the last sort of remaining influential, independent uh, liberal media pushed off air, real institutions that it would have been hard to imagine Russia existing without even a few months ago, even under um, this more repressive form of late Putinism. So the TV Rain, an online TV station, has suspended its streams. A lot of its staff has left the country. Novaya Gazeta, which is a storied liberal newspaper whose editor-in-chief won the Nobel Peace Prize recently, they've halted publication. Echo Moskvi, a popular liberal radio station, is no longer on the airwaves. For those that do continue to operate, they either have to do so from outside the country or in accordance with the very strict new laws uh, that govern information during this so-called special military operation.
0: So that's the censorship side. What about the propaganda? Has there been any change in what the Kremlin is churning out?
1: In the past, a lot of the official propaganda in Russia ultimately bred passivity. It kind of cast doubt on reality. It discouraged political participation. It threw tons of theories and crazed narratives into the air to the point where it became hard to really believe in the existence of reality itself, to believe what you were seeing and hearing. And I think what we're seeing increasingly since February 24th is a real effort to shift the propaganda towards mobilization, towards encouraging people to participate in the war effort, to really convince viewers and and readers and listeners that Russia is under attack and that victory is the only option.
0: And how does this manifest itself? Talk us through what this coverage looks like to people.
1: What I did to help illustrate some of these changes is I just spent a single day, May 11th, a relatively average Wednesday, immersed in the world of official Russian media. I tried to kind of put myself in the shoes of a typical Russian news consumer to pick up the morning paper one of that morning's papers did articles about how Russia's budget is bursting with oil revenues and Western sanctions are nothing to fear. You might find in the middle of your day, as I did, as you scroll through Russian social media, articles about how terrorist plots by Ukrainian Nazi sympathizers were foiled by the Russian security services. <laughs> Stories about how regions of southern Ukraine will become Russian because it's what the people of Ukraine desire. As you're driving home from work, you might hear on the radio, as I did in the late afternoon, news broadcasts about the latest revelations from the front in Ukraine and that America has been financing laboratories for biological weapons in Ukraine
2: деятельности вблизи наших границ по данным российских военных в донбассе уже
1: пытались and that they had been planning to develop and potentially use those biological weapons against Russia itself when you get home from work and drop down in front of the TV you might see political talk shows
2: и
0: конечно нашим
1: where The hosts describe the exploits of brave Russian soldiers and rail against what they call a new crusade against Russia itself. So the effect is really one of creating a kind of total... Parallel universe, a parallel set of narratives. And it cuts across, again, all these mediums from newspapers to radio to television to social media. And if you live inside that world, these narratives start to really take hold. They tap into a lot of collective memory, a lot of tropes about identity, a lot of powerful dog whistles in all of this coverage, things that to an outside viewer might seem a bit insane. But in the context Of this world that's constructed by the Russian official propaganda,
0: they might seem perfectly plausible. Is there any way of avoiding this blanket coverage?
1: There is a way to avoid this blanket coverage. There are still unofficial sources of information that Russians can access. For example, YouTube is still accessible in Russia. The opposition leader, Alexei Navalny's followers broadcast from there. Several of the liberal media set up newsletters or YouTube streams. There are messaging apps such as Telegram, which allow people to follow news channels of all different political stripes. And finally, if you use a VPN, a virtual private network, uh, you can access even banned sites. But that said, plenty of Russians, especially older folks, don't have the technical skills perhaps to access information this way. We do see the ban having an effect on the use of these platforms. For example, if you take a look at Instagram, about 30% of Russians were using it daily before the war and by late April, that had fallen to about 10%. So once these barriers go up, a portion of the audience is inevitably going to drop off.
0: And how effective is this propaganda on the ground?
1: Despite the propaganda's efforts to mobilize Russians, it's important to note that, by and large, Russians don't seem willing and ready to sacrifice themselves en masse for the cause. Um, We've seen, in fact, reports of soldiers refusing to go to the front, folks throwing Molotov cocktails at military recruitment offices. And the Kremlin has avoided the draft, I think in part because they know it would be unpopular amongst the population at large. That said, for many people it's not so much about access to unofficial information or official information as it is a question of desire. I mean, people consume misinformation by choice because it reinforces pre-existing narratives. Uh, it reinforces the world that they live in. And that's true, I think, beyond Russia. It's true of misinformation in other parts of the world as well. What's distinct is that in Russia, that is compounded by repression and violence. And so veering away from the official narrative pushes people out of their comfort zone and potentially puts them in jeopardy so uh, a lot of people find it difficult psychologically to move out of this watching the propaganda remaining
0: in the the world of official information it's a kind of a psychological defense mechanism i think and noah your fantastic piece about a day spent following the russian media is on our website now It's unconventional, brilliantly presented. Tell us a bit about what's gone into that.
1: So in order to bring this world of official Russian media to life, I worked closely with a team of colleagues, brilliant designers, data specialists, who really helped construct an immersive experience that allows our readers to inhabit this space, to spend a day in the life of a Russian media consumer.
0: All right. It's a brilliant, immersive read. I can't recommend it highly enough. And you can find a link to it in the show notes for this podcast. Noah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, John. For a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. — Lending money is an essential function of a bank. Yet earlier this month, Zimbabwe's president, Emerson Mnangagwa decreed that his country's banks should stop lending indefinitely.
1: — Zimbabwe's government has ordered banks to stop lending with immediate effect. — It
0: was an unorthodox attempt to stave off triple-digit inflation rates. But the ban didn't last long. Soon after it was announced, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe said the ban would not apply to marketable commodities such as cotton, sugar, maize, and others. It was finally dropped altogether earlier this week. But Zimbabwe's economy remains a mess. And President Mnangagwa's haphazard policies leave little confidence that he's the man to turn it around.
3: The big fear in Zimbabwe at the moment is that hyperinflation might come back. Robert Guest is The Economist's foreign editor. They thought they'd beaten it. Between 2007 and 2009, it ravaged the country. It peaked by one estimate at a mind-boggling 230 million percent or so. But now it's creeping back. It's about 150 percent at the moment. We see the currency, the Zimbabwe dollar, really losing its value. So a couple of years ago in February 2019, one U.S. dollar was worth two and a half Zimbabwe dollars. Now the official rate's about 260 and the black market rate is about 450. No one trusts the local currency. Everyone thinks that its value is just steadily going to be destroyed. And they're desperately looking for ways to get hold of hard currency. So how did Zimbabwe
0: tame its previous bout of hyperinflation and why is it coming back if it had in fact tamed it?
3: The way it tamed hyperinflation before was by abolishing the local currency, the Zimbabwe dollar. They just dollarized, started using the American currency instead. Then what happened was that the government, currently led by someone called Emerson Mnangagwa, who seized power in a coup in 2017 and then won a dodgy election after that, they realized that the hard currency, the dollars that were in banks, were just sort of digits on a screen. And they started to think, well, hmm, maybe if we started helping ourselves to some of these dollars, people won't initially notice And then gradually people started to realize that it was difficult to take their money out of the banks and that, in fact, their hard currency was being confiscated. And so the government started emptying other people's bank accounts.
0: But it also, luckily for it, controls the money presses, right?
3: So the root of the problem is that the government spends much more money than it takes in in tax revenues, and it prints money effectively to cover that. And that means that the local currency, the Zimbabwe dollar, just keeps losing its value. And they try to control the supply. They say, OK, exporters, people who generate real dollar revenues, the mines, the, the tobacco farmers, anyone who's making anything that you can sell to foreigners, they require exporters to surrender a huge portion of their proceeds to the Reserve Bank. At the official rate, i.e., they basically confiscate a large portion of the hard currency that the economy generates. And then that currency is sold at cut price, supposedly to people who need it to import essential equipment and spare parts and fuel and things like that. But in practice, what happens is that very well connected people, friends of the ruling party, end up at the front of the queue to buy hard currency for barely half what it's worth. It completely destroys the confidence that ordinary Zimbabweans have in their own currency, which is why it's rapidly inflating away, and everyone is scrambling to try to get hold of hard currency, however they can.
0: And so how is the government trying to thread that needle? If the well-connected want the system kept in place, but it's causing a lot of
3: disquiet among the population, what's the government doing about it? Earlier this month, the president announced that he was going to ban all bank lending, including overdrafts, everything. Nobody knew whether he meant this or not, or whether there would be exceptions. It was completely crazy. The banks went mad. If you ban bank lending, you, you shut down the economy. So that's the level of chaos that economic policy is in Zimbabwe. It is almost impossible to predict what the rules will be tomorrow, let alone in a year's time. And that makes it incredibly difficult for people to invest any money in the country except on a very short-term basis. And what does that chaos and
0: unpredictability look like for people living through it, for ordinary Zimbabweans?
3: It's incredibly tough. If you are being paid in local currency, as many civil servants are, then your wages are rapidly eaten away to almost nothing. So everyone has a side hustle. It is almost impossible to save money in local currency because it disappears. So you see people, as soon as they get a pay packet, they will buy a load of bricks. One person I met who's doing this is uh, Munyaradze Dombujena. Yeah, so. Mm. So, so, you're saying that the, the, the moment
1: you, you, you've got money in your hands, there's no use to go put it in the bank. Because the moment you, you put it in the bank, by the time you want to collect it, it will be less. So, it's
3: better the moment you get the, the, the money and, and then you you, you buy bricks. And when
2: I got enough it's bricks to, to make put a, a
3: wall. They'll build a wall, and when they've got enough bricks to make two walls, they'll make two walls, and eventually, after a number of years, they may have a house, and then that's worth something, which their money would not be if they'd put it in the bank. So it sounds
0: like a rough situation. I assume Zimbabweans need to get pretty creative to survive.
3: Absolutely. I spoke to one man, Percy Msona. Now, he was a maths teacher, but he found it almost impossible to survive uh, on his official salary, which could be as little as $30 a month.
1: My salary would go for about six months without being raised, and uh, the inflation would have eaten it up, so that uh, when buying the US dollars, in order for me to be able to pay my rent and the food stuff, uh, it would have fallen from let's say 30 to 40 US dollars to about 15 dollars in, the, in, the, in six months' time.
3: So he quit being a teacher, uh, and now he trades currency in the street. And so how long will this last, do you think? Is there any change in sight? It's impossible to know how long this is going to last for. We do know that the people of Zimbabwe have no confidence whatsoever in their own currency, so long as it's controlled by the current government, the ruling party, PF. The only practical solution will be to dollarize again. Zimbabwe is a country with enormous potential. Its soil is fertile and studded with gold. Food and mineral prices are really high at the moment. It has what used to be one of the best educated populations in Africa. But for the past three decades, they've just been kept down. And I worry that, you know, there's a general election due next year. The ruling party will undoubtedly print more money to buy food to hand out in areas that support the ruling party. The opposition say they would win a fair contest, and I'm sure that's true. But equally, it's absolutely certain that it won't be fair. So it's a little hard to know what's going to happen. All right, Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you.
2: Stormy waters of the Pacific, very close to Japan, an American fleet gets ready to launch its carrier planes. In spite of the weather, their destination is Tokyo. Of all the bombing raids carried out by the Americans against the Japanese at the end of the Second World War, by far the most destructive was the great Tokyo raid of March the 10th, 1945, where in the course of three hours in the early morning... 100,000 people were killed and about a million made homeless.
0: Anne Rowe is the Economist's obituaries
2: editor. A fleet of 334 B-29 bombers was sent out from the Marianas Islands and aimed for the poorest and most densely populated part of Tokyo, the Shitamachi district. And that was the district where Saotomi Katsumoto lived. He was 12 years old. He was a schoolboy, but he was also working in an ironworks where he would collect scrap metal from the streets and make it into hand grenades. The family was fairly poor. His mother was a seamstress. His father, when he wasn't drinking too much, was a street vendor. And so they had very little anyway And when his father suddenly woke him up in the middle of the night, he put his clothes on quickly as he could and clutched for his most important treasure, which was a pouch of old coins, and rushed down the stairs and saw, looking outside, that the sky was already crimson. The B-29s were coming across so low that he could see the flames reflected in their silvery underbellies. He thought they looked like tropical fish. In spite of counterblows, preparations for yet another raid on Japan's capital continued. But soon the situation began to turn to horror. They realised that they couldn't possibly stay in the house. The wooden houses were burning all around them, and they couldn't really realistically remain in the shelter. They had to evacuate sparks were flying everywhere like swallows so they raced as fast as they could towards the river he saw children swept away from their parents arms by the bomb blasts and when they came at last down to the Sudemi river they saw people with long poles fishing out of the river the charred bodies of dozens even hundreds of people who had just managed to arrive there and had not been able to get any further. This terrible raid was burned into his mind, but elsewhere the attitude to it was quite different. Japan, after the war, didn't want to remember the raids. It also found that only Hiroshima and Nagasaki were part of public remembrance. The government thought it might antagonize the Americans who were then in occupation of Japan to raise the issue of the terrible nature of this raid and the repercussions that had been taken, not against soldiers and fighters, but against a civilian population. He himself, though, was determined that the raid should not be forgotten. In 1967, Just three years after Japan had signaled its post-war confidence to the world by staging the Olympic Games, something happened that made it seem the raid could come back to the public eye. There was work going on on the Tozai subway line in Tokyo, and workmen uncovered a shelter where there were six skeletons huddled together. It was clear that this was a relic of the great raid. Mr. Saotomi had written, by this time, several novels that were all based on the raid, but it was not enough to write fiction. There had to be actual relics and recollections of the raid put where people could reach them and taught about in schools. So he set about trying to find other survivors. At first, he found 16 people who would talk to him. People gradually unfolded. The conversations were extremely difficult, but in the end, after... A long time of wandering around Tokyo with a notebook and pen, he managed to publish six volumes of recollections. However, the government still was very unfavourable towards the enterprise. He had found support from the governor of Tokyo, but certainly not from the Japanese government itself. He always did accept that Japan was fundamentally to blame for what its citizens Had to go through, and he didn't hold any particular animus against the Americans. But he certainly felt by the end that he had not argued enough. In 2002, he set up a museum, and it contained thousands of relics and manuscripts, letters from children who'd been evacuated, constructed with private funds because the government would give no money for it, and it had to be put in a rather distant part of the city. So few people came to it, about 10,000 every year, compared to the 1.5 million who visit Hiroshima annually. Mr. Saotomi spent his life trying to persuade people that they should care about it. But he realized as he was entering his final weeks of life that his other ambition to end war To try to preach the gospel of pacifism by showing people how dreadful war was, had got a very long way to go, too, because he was watching footage on the news of Ukrainians leaving the country. And it immediately brought back to him the figures of the people of Chitamachi fleeing the fire of the 10th of March, 1945.
0: Anne Rowe on Katsumoto Saotome, who's died, age 90. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, Our senior producers are John-Joe Devlin, Jack Gill, and Sam Westron. Our U.S. audio correspondent is Stevie Hertz. Our producers are Rory Galloway, William Warren, and Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and assistant producer Abisoyos Ndairo, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias. We'll all see you back here on Monday.